It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. I'm Rob, he, him. And uh, in terms of group organization, it's just myself, but I do have a, a project that I'm working on broadly called The Right Podcast. And you can find that on Twitter as well as YouTube. But there's also a website that has my video, audio, a few articles, but also a lot of other resources meant to assist native people, links for research, how to conduct research, uh, life skills, where to find help if you need it in certain situations. So that's the therightpodcast.org. All right. Well, we started talking because you did a really great show on the recent rally against the war machine, which we'll get into sort of the actors behind that and what that was all about in a second here. And then you also did another great one sort of on the coming together of right and left populism's as we were talking about before we started recording, people like Jimmy Dore, who is, I guess you would say, like a, a progressive uh, YouTuber, comedian, supposedly, uh, often goes on Tucker Carlson, has like a million viewers, sort of kind of the face of this. Other people like Greenwald, uh, I would put Matt Taibbi in there. There's a lot of these people that have sort of kind of shifted from a progressive stance to embracing parts of MAGA or Tucker Carlson right populism, if you can even say that with a straight face. But let's start with the recent demonstration. What was the rally against the war machine that happened a couple weeks ago? And why is it significant? Why are we even talking about it? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are still asking themselves what it was. And um, I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of things for people like myself or you who, who analyze this type of activity. But I think just objectively speaking, Rage Against the War Machine was a non-tax deductible corporation put together by Nick Brana and uh, the Libertarian Party to create an event and uh, to make money. And, uh, you know, in in my view, that's, that's essentially what it was. Um, it wasn't a protest necessarily against anything. Uh, it was this weird combination of, of comedy, I guess, and music. Um, but ultimately at the end of the day, the, the way that I see it, and at least in my experience of being an activist and being in protest, I've never needed, you know, 80,000, $100,000 to protest a war. Uh, th this was an attempt to, you know, es essentially make a, a new corporation, kind of like what the people's party was, prior to that with, with Nick Brenna and uh, make money. But I think a lot of the analysis coming from it is uh, 
folks on the left and even mainstream media, you know, I've, I've even seen this um, on like MSN, you know, little quips about it, trying to to wrap their minds around the spectacle that occurred. And and that's how I kind of described it. You know, it's it was really a spectacle and, and it's, it's a spectacle of capitalism because it was all to make money. But I mean, it, it was a, a spectacle of what would seem, I think, to be for an outsider, a lot of contradictory or opposing groups and people and views coming together um, with what's kind of like an unclear or, or vague message. And at the heart of that message, surrounded by some some other barriers like and nuclear war and things like that. Um, but at the heart of it was this idea of being anti-war is is being essentially a pro-Russia. And that's not me saying it. That's that's actually something Jackson Hinkle, who attended and, and spoke, that he put that on his Twitter timeline. And so I think a lot of folks that aren't actively engaged in in this type of analysis were, you know, looking at this a little cross-eyed saying, well, what do you mean by that? You know, we don't really understand what's happening. Yeah, just to kind of go back. So this was a rally that happened in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. We have an article and it's going down about Matthew Heimbach and sort of his latest uh, groupsicle that went out there. And they were talking about on a podcast, uh, their group supposedly was in contact with some of the organizers in D.C. We'll sort of tease that out a little more as we go into this. Uh, but they went out there, like you said, this was put on by two groups, um, the Libertarian Party, which is now controlled by the Mises Caucus, which we've done another podcast on, which is sort of a, a far right ANCAP uh, described, self-described as Hoppian, which is sort of anarcho-monarchist, which of course is not a real thing, but people that embrace like just extreme far right libertarian ideology uh, within the Libertarian Party. Then another group, which is sort of this left populist, quote unquote, a group called the People's Party. They came together to put on this event, which was under the kind of the banner of an anti-war rally. But in reality, it was more so a, a pro-Putin, pro-Russia rally based on just the people that spoke, you know, the the makeup of the speakers. There was a lot of people like Dennis Kucinich, uh, Jill Stein. Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Ron Paul was there. So like former, you know, libertarian Republican people, quote unquote, or progressive Democrats that have sort of, you know, made the round. Cynthia McKinney was supposed to be there, although I believe she didn't show up. Also like um, somebody that's associated with with the Oath Keepers, who's like a folk singer that created their theme song, like performed. Uh, there were people that were associated with uh, the Center for Political Innovation and the whole MAGA communism thing. We'll get into that too. Uh, a lot of people that are in the space of like Russia controlled media spoke. Um, there was a lot of people flying like uh, Russian battle flags or Russian Imperial flags there. Uh, obviously that's what Heimbach was doing. It's like a very pro Russia, you know, we want Russia to win. We want Russia to invade Ukraine. I guess to kind of get started, where do you want to sort of take the discussion as we sort of like kind of dive into this world here? It's a lot, man. I, I think a, a comment you, you laid you laid that out very well. All, all the different groups that were were involved. 
Um, and I think like in reaction to that, I think one that that's part of the puzzling feature for some folks on the left or, or, or just in general that don't, again, you know, like really delve into super chats with people and, and, and track this stuff or, or what have you is that there are people like, like a Dennis Kucinich or a Jill Stein that maybe, you know, on, on the surface peripherally, you know, viewing this might have appeared somewhat legitimate in the past or, or, you know, at least not on a level of like CPI, for instance. And um, so I, I think that there's confusion around that. And I, and I also think that there's confusion around this idea of how, how these folks got to the ideological point of saying being pro Russia is, is anti-war. And, and we'll, we'll get to that, but I think that those are like the two big reactions I, I had from that. And maybe that dovetails into something that I, I wanted to talk about because I, I do think it's important, um, which is why people should care, you know? And, and I say that because I think objectively speaking, I certainly have, have acquaintances and friends that um, are progressive or Bernie people or further left, you know, that uh, don't even know that this event really occurred or, or they saw a little quip about it, uh, but they don't put much stock in it and don't, you know, really care about the people involved because they view those people as kind of being clowns, you know, but I think that, you know, that's, I think that's a mistaken point of view. And, and I think what you said about, for instance, gray zone people, you know, being there or, or folks that, that work for, you know, at least semi-legitimate news organizations, or at one point in their life, you'd mentioned Glenn Greenwald. He wasn't necessarily connected with this, but Max Blumenthal, for instance, that, that do have a history of, you know, legitimate journalism, but for whatever reason are, are choosing to engage in, in this subject matter. I, I, I do think that for folks that aren't actively engaged, there's like a false a false idea that what happens on the internet or or what happens on, you know, VK or Gab or 4chan stays there. You know, it's like a, a place for weirdos. But, you know, we were, we were talking a little before this, you know, I contend that that doesn't really exist nowadays. And, you know, there's academic papers that cite social media. There's new, every, you go on your computer any day and whatever is on your splash page, you know, there's a news article. It might be about something that happened on Twitter, for instance. And that a lot of the people that we're talking about, uh, as you said, go on to Tucker Carlson. And that's something that I really hit on part of, you know, the Rupert Murdoch global media empire. It's as mainstream media as you get Fox news being the number one news station in the country, Tucker Carlson being the second most watched, uh, you know, uh, thing on that, that news station. So it's, it's to me, I, I think that these people are, are significant, but I do think that at times they're kind of dismissed because individually they're clownish. And even within maybe, you know, what I might say, like our ranks, maybe people do it just to get through dark content. But I, I do feel as if sometimes these people aren't legitimized to the point that they, they really need to be again, not necessarily because they themselves have some serious ideology to contend against, but because if anything, you know, we were talking about getting groups together like the CPI at Rage Against the War Machine, but more so to me is this idea of spreading information and really being adept at controlling messages and leveraging social media and being able to infiltrate folks on the outside who might not really even know like who these people are or care to for that matter. Well, as a starting off point, let's kind of 
start with Jimmy Dore as sort of a case study and talk about uh, how he and others have sort of created this brand around making an alliance between left and right populisms, quote unquote. You know, he's somebody that goes on Tucker Carlson a lot. And we really see this refrain a lot from from certain uh, people. I don't even want to say on the left. I mean, because like, as you were kind of pointing to, this is really like a kind of like an something that we really see within influencer politics, you know, or somebody like uh, Bill Maher is really big on this. You know, we don't see people coming out in, of social movements being like, oh man, this, this wokeism brand that, you know, the right has created, like, we've really got to do something about this. And we've really got to align with this, you know, corporate wing of the MAGA Republicans, you know, in order to win the hearts and minds of the working class of America. I mean, this is really sort of a, a refrain that we hear from influencers online that really seems to be more about justifying their own position to people online in order to get access to listenership and get views. You know, one of the things that you pointed out in one of your videos, which I thought was a fantastic point you made, is that if you kind of zoom out and you look at for instance, the content that people like Jimmy Dore are putting out. Like if you look at, if you put all the videos that he did in aggregate, it would look sort of like Tim Pool stuff. You know, Tim Pool, again, is sort of kind of like an archetype for a lot of these folks. You know, the narrative that he puts out about himself is not new. It's something very common on the right. A lot of people have kind of presented themselves as this, as sort of a disaffected liberal I mean, this is how Candace Owens presented herself. This is how Jared Taylor from American Renaissance presented himself as somebody that, like, you know, I used to be on the left, but it's just so crazy over there. I had to kind of come over and just become this Nazi. But let's kind of talk about Jimmy Dore. How did this sort of crossover start and what caused it? To me, that's kind of a deep question, although it, it doesn't need to be. But when, when you're speaking, I mean, geez, I remember Ronald Reagan saying something along the lines of, I didn't lead a Democratic Party, Democratic Party left me, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Stepping back at, at a macro level, I, while there are plenty of people on the left today and, and historically, and not grifters, people that put together ideas or ideologies, that, you know, conspiracy ha has always existed with that. I, I do contend that at least a lot of the modern conspiracy theories that we see um, are steeped in at least what we would call today, like reactionary right politics. Um, and it's because a lot of them, you know, kind of revolve around the same themes and ideas. And like you said, that that gets clicks, you know, and, and I think it works because they've been around for so long, you know, and the, a lot of the a lot of the narratives and the tropes ha have already been, you know, tried and tested and, and are being repackaged. So I don't think it's that hard for someone like you said, like, like for Tim Pool, for instance, or, or Jimmy Dore to take what's already worked in the past, which is objectively a reactionary, at least if you don't want to get caught up in, in right and left, but, you know, at, at least a, a bigoted, you know, reactionary stance, something that, ultimately probably points to anti-Semitism at some point, for instance, and repackage that and present it as something new to a new audience. And I think that that's maybe why this is working, is that at, at, at this point in history, I think that there's a, a unique audience and a unique platform 
in social media to reach those audiences. And, you know, I think you could argue about like how that happened or when it started, but uh, I, I kind of think it started honestly a little while ago. I, I think it, it kind of started with disappointment that some people had with the Obama administration, to be honest. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of people got activated to electoral politics during that time. Um, and rightfully so in many contexts, you know, if we look at that point in history, not in retrospect. But I think a lot of people were upset and disenfranchised by what happened, uh, essentially looking at, you know, the objective material consequences of of that, you know, administration and, and how it wasn't very different from the past. And people got excited about Bernie Sanders, you know, who presented as as an outsider, which, you know, I think people wanted people wanted Obama to be a progressive and an outsider and someone that was going to fundamentally alter institutions, you know, which didn't happen. And and that they felt maybe Bernie Sanders could do that. And I think that a lot of people got, you know, disenfranchised with how the Democratic Party handled the primaries, at least, you know, the first time around with Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders. So I think there's a lot of like vitriol from progressives, Green Party, anyone that, that wasn't, you know, straight up Democrat towards the Democratic Party at that time. And I think that like concurrent with that, there was a lot of stuff going happening online too at that time. I mean, that's the alt-right and, you know, Gamergate a little before that. It's when conspiracy theories really started to pop up, I think, in my view, um, with an eye towards like anti-imperialism. And I'm thinking about stuff maybe it's a little early, but, you know, like a little bit later would, would be Gray Zone and the Assad regime and, um, you know, looking at, at conspiracies based around what happened there. Oliver Stone's movie, Ukraine on Fire, came out in 2014. And that started gaining traction online, too. So I think long story short, there was just a lot happening with electoral politics and the advances in social media, but also a lot of like geopolitical things that were happening and people creating misinformation around those events. And then really, I think COVID is what blew it all up, you know, and with COVID and the the intersectional approach to those conspiracy theories, I guess you could say how those we're influencing everybody from, you know, health people and yoga people all the way to, you know, white supremacists talking about, you know, pure blood and stuff like that. Um, it, it's created this this landscape where um, it is true, although I think it's, you know, it's a little dangerous to say it because it's very white supremacist. But I, I, I do think it's it's created a landscape to where old ideas of left and right maybe aren't there and people are more receptive or open to different ideas. Um, and that someone like Jimmy Dore, who is really just repackaging old stuff and, and adding on the policy or something on top of it, but that these people at least seem to be speaking truth to power or, or um, are being objective. Again, in, in this landscape with everything that was just stated, you know, like the, the, the cable news stations and, and, and traditional media are just so clearly exposed, you know, as being biased or this or that. It, it, it leaves space open for these people. Even even Tim Pool tweets every once in a while about Ukraine or something, you know. And um, again, while I think that it's it can be objectively clear that these are people making money and that they're grifting and 
uh, they're not, I mean, as you said, they're not doing anything, you know, they're, they're not volunteering. They're not taking all of their money that they use to buy compounds in places in Los Angeles and, you know, putting that to ongoing good causes and things like that, you know, but um, I do think that at least space open for these people to, to kind of take advantage and co-opt that disenfranchised population of people. And it also leaves open a lot of opportunists too. Um, and, you know, we'll get to that um, when we talk maybe more about ideologies, because, you know, it is a, it is kind of a concern of mine that sometimes I think these folks are glossed over as just being grifters where it, to me, it doesn't matter if they care or they understand what it is that they're promoting, but that they are promoting in one way or another actual very serious ideologies. Let's kind of unpack sort of the the ideology that they're selling, because if you look at a lot of these folks, it seems to kind of come down to a rejection of, quote, wokeness, which is seems to be just sort of a repackaging of this trope of the social justice warrior and this idea that wokeness is alienating to you know the everyday working class person however they define that that in order to get anywhere they have to reach across the aisle to maga and find common ground along quote class issues in order to progress a progressive politic i mean boiled down and basically that's the kind of like boilerplate talking point for a lot of these folks. So let's sort of unpack that and like break that apart. What does that actually really mean? The way you, des- the, you describe that's good because I think right off the bat, you know, for again, folks that aren't in here all the time that, you know, when, when, when they see something like anti-woke that is associated with Fox news or something, you know, or, or MAGA. And so it, it, it can it can put people it can flip people a little bit when they see it coming from someone's you know who's like well I support Medicare for all or, or something like that. But you know if we're talking like the heart of it, I think a lot of the the aesthetics, both in the the argument, which is kind of a weak one, but but also the way in which it, that argument is represented, you know, in, in meme form and stuff. I mean, a lot of that to me just comes from like. The, the 2014, 2015, 4chan culture and, and alt-right, you know, and, um, you know, I say that because I think it's important to, to, you know, directly link some of these people and ideas to reactionary places or right-wing places, however you want to describe it, racist places. Well, again, we keep saying we'll get to it and we will, but, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer. I, I think it's a sales pitch uh, more so than it is an inherent truth that these people are seeking a right left alliance. Um, instead, I would argue that a lot of these people are, are just inherently reactionary people. And, you know, like whether they're doing that for money or ideology or, or both, it, it, it kind of doesn't kind of doesn't matter. But there, there is this meshing, like you said, of, of, of anti-wokeism and, I also think being cynical, you know, you said we have to reach maybe like, you know, reach across the aisle, let's say to the other side. And that would be very appealing to a content creator, wouldn't it? You know, to, to cross pollinate audiences um, and and maybe get an opportunity to, to hit the big time on Tucker Carlson or something like that. That's a lot of Patreon dollars, too. You know, and that can't be ignored. But along, I, I think that when we're looking at these you know, different ideologies. I kind of joked half-heartedly 
maybe I'll start using it, kind of these like hashtag ideologies that, that, you know, we'd say, because again, for the most part, these people really aren't organizing, you know, CPI may be a little bit different, but um, for the most part, these people are having shows and they're just talking about stuff, you know, and, and, and making money. They're not actually volunteering or, or doing any of the, the, the dirty work that you have to do, whether it's act, being an activist or just as a full-time job. But I do think that, you know, when one thing that a lot of these, uh, whatever you want to call them, hashtag ideologies, Jimmy Dore, et cetera, um, have in common, Tim Pool, for that matter, is that they are rooted in conspiracy. And it's not just conspiracy, but it's it's this combination of, of populism and conspiracy. And it gives you edge. But, you know, that that edge that's created, again, is is the that aesthetic of, to me, again, you know, 4chan circa 2015 or something. And so it's, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. But, you know, what it allows for is, is for people to create generalizations. So, for instance... You know, Jimmy Dore doesn't need to be versed in Marx or something like that to to say, oh, I'm a leftist and I'm I'm you know I'm for the people and against the elites, or I'm against the establishment. It's it's us versus them. You know, um, that in and of itself is problematic, and it's something that I see infiltrating or or becoming more popular. You know, on the left, as opposed to what I think you could call like a critical analysis maybe even a materialist perspective or, or critique. Um, when you have these generalizations, one, like we said, there's already a lot of prepackaged material to draw from. And, and a lot of it's really bad stuff. I mean, ultimately, again, you know, anti-Semitic stuff. So there, there's a lot of that to draw from. But it, it also kind of like creates a gap. And, and that's a big part of, of what they're doing and what they're selling is they're creating like a wedge, you know, with within the left. And the wedge that's created here is that if someone like Dor is saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm for the people, I'm against the elites. And, and somebody, you know, says, well, what do you mean by elites? What, what do you mean when you say globalist? What are you talking about specifically? Because that's the same language I can find on Stormfront. And so I'm trying to see what it is that, that you're saying. You know, if you come at it like that, in that, in, in the framing of it as a populist discussion, you're automatically an outsider. And, and being an outsider, you can be cast off as being a liberal or a neocon or an academic or maybe a pedo, right? You know, something along those lines. And so any serious critique, you know, of the matter is, is in a way automatically dismissed through this mixing of populism and, and conspiracy. Um, as opposed to actual critical thoughts, critical analysis, materialist, you know, critique or, or what have you. And that that us versus them, you know, is 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 inherently dangerous, even though it's good for slogans and it's good for protests on that, you know, policing anybody and how they make signs and stuff. But if we're looking at it from like a an ideological point of view, um, it. it again, creates a lot of space that, that can be vague or borrowed. It, it creates a gatekeeper or like someone who knows the truth, a figurehead, who is ultimately whomever you're paying Patreon dollars for here. Um, but, you know, it also allows that person to dictate who the people are and who the valid people are. 
and and that gets to you talking about you know like concern for white men for instance um that i think we can get into if we talk about national bolshevism a little bit but um you know in in inherent in, in a lot of these things is i suppose what you could call a traditionalist or um I, I like traditionalists because that spans continents, you know, view of, of who the real people are, who, who are the Volk, for instance, you know, and what, you know, Jimmy Dore and these folks are, are trying to do is take what's already been written in the past and, you know, what other people have done, take that idea of the people, the Volk, and essentially put MAGA in there, right, and, and replace it with that, Um and, and in, in that, they have this formula to where they can say, I'm left, I support Medicare for all, but I also support the people. And these are the people, not the wokes, not these other folks. And there's a lot involved with that, too. We can when we will talk about LaRoche and um, conspiracies about, you know, Trotsky and neocons. But inherent in, in a lot of these different hashtag ideologies is a notion that in the past, the left was split artificially and that part of that artificial split is like a cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan intellectualism that's disconnected from the real people. And that someone like Jimmy Dore, which is just, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. The guy has a mansion, but, but that, that he is somehow connected to the real people and that, you know, that's why the real people can speak truth to power and, and part of speaking truth from, from a real person populist point of view does involve conspiracy theories for instance uh covid and and things like that um and it, again it, it creates that wedge because if you're coming at this from a an, an intellectually good faith position you're automatically pushed out essentially as an elitist as a liberal etc or, or or another right so i i have more but i i think that that's kind of like the groundwork for what these people are trying to do or what they're doing I've seen a common talking point. You bring this up uh, really well in your videos is that they have this sort of weird uh, alternate universe in which there are all these examples of the right and the left working together. One in which is this protest that happened somewhere in like Las Vegas where somebody that used to be in the populist party and you go into this, I think at one point was in the Black Panthers or it used to be in the Black Panthers, but it was something around like uh, welfare rights or welfare access. And they organized a protest. And I think the story goes is that some people from the Klan happened to be at the demonstration because they happened to support it. So they spun into this thing that the Black Panthers and the Klan were working together, which is just ridiculous and as you say in the video is not what happens like they were working in concert another example is and i think this is one is even more important to point out because i hear even young people bringing this up is the idea that the rainbow coalition that formed in the late 1960s around the leadership of the black panther uh, fred hampton who was assassinated by the fbi and the chicago police force was somehow a coming together of quote racist whites and black people and other folks in uh working class neighborhood in, in Chicago, which is not the case. It was a coalition that was formed between revolutionary left groups that identified as anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, and socialist groups largely like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, which came out of the Puerto Rican community, 
And then you had a group of the Young Patriots, which was a left-wing, working-class group of folks that had come from communities that had moved to Chicago from the South, uh, from Appalachia, and had moved into Chicago neighborhoods. And they were sort of this lumpen proletarian youth wing uh, that was very leftist, and they were very much fans of the Black Panthers. And they ended up working together in a coalition. They did for a while use the Confederate flag as sort of their logo. And then they later said, like, yeah, that was a bad idea. And they stopped using it. And if you listen to them talk now, they argue we never should have used that logo. But because of that sort of branding, they were branded by a lot of folks, especially on the right. Um, I've even heard like people like Matthew Heimbach describe them as, quote, white nationalists, which is just ludicrous. This was a left-wing organization. And the Rainbow Coalition itself, um, like I've heard it described by people like James Tracy, who ended up working on a book with several other people uh, called Hillbilly Nationalists, talking about how the Rainbow Coalition was class struggle for people that weren't ready to or to fight in a class struggle, meaning people coming together from different racial backgrounds and neighborhoods and forming a coalition around common interests and then working together. But it was nothing like how Jimmy Dore and other folks have described it as sort of this right-left alliance. And certainly the Young Patriots were not a right-wing organization, nor were they racist. They were actually anti-racist and very left-wing. And on this podcast, we've actually had a chance to interview two folks that were involved in that group, the Young Patriot Party. One of them was from Chicago, High Thurman. And you can go back and listen to those. I find it fascinating that they've kind of like glommed on to this history and used it sort of as kind of like as this baseline that they're building on from, which is just a total misreading of history. What, what you said is is all accurate. And um, and you're right with the Young Patriots specifically, how that how that idea of of having solidarity with the Black Panthers and so um, you know, losing symbols, you know, like the Confederate flag and, and doing so in good faith in order to essentially gain access to that coalition and, and work with that coalition, keyword being solidarity and how that's left out. And to me, that's a, a, a major, major thing about this discussion. And sometimes even I admit, I, I go from here to there to there to here with this because there's so much. But regardless of, of anything that's that's being said, um, I have ideas why. But the complete and total lack of not, not only solidarity, but also internationalism and international solidarity. The way in which those have been flipped and in a way weaponized, and, and I can get to that, by, by folks... Um, that, that we've been talking about in general, you know, maybe the, the online left, broadly speaking, you know, and, and gray zone and, and, and maybe a little broader. But that's it. If we're looking at it ideologically and not cynically, just, you know, money, um, that's one of the key features of this. And when I first when I first started looking at this, you know, I was um, I, I was looking at Dugan and and I knew national, you know, Nasballs were a few different things, including like an online kind of, you know, thing too. But 
one of the, the key features when, when you go back and you actually look at what those people are talking about, and I think it's worth it because it's, it's one of those hashtag ideologies and it's, it's one of these things, even I've, I've heard Matthew Hanbach kind of classify himself as this every once in a while. But one of the key features, and it's significant because it's something that Dugan copies, and it's something that I think to much lesser degrees, it's like telephone. The further you go away, the, the lesser it gets. But, but to a lesser degree, what some of these people gloss onto or, or, or pick up on and, and gloss over and you know, um, repackage. It was the idea that in that that Weimar period of of Germany, when you had people like Patel and 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 Nikisch and these people that were looking for an alternative, that not only were they looking at, at some type of working with the other side, but that they we're defining the other side as kind of true owners to everything. And when we look at internationalism, when we look at solidarity, I think that that's a good place to start where it's, it's being scrubbed. It's, it's, it's becoming surgically removed from the idea, meaning that as opposed to having solidarity with those facing violence or oppression or, or what have you, um, you know, solidarity is is redefined by the Volk and culture or the dominant culture and dominant, let's just get to it, race, you know, of of that nation. And this this idea that even back then, if communists or council communists or whatever you want to call them are going to be successful, that they needed to ditch internationalism that they needed um, to be less critical of the working class in regarding, you know, let's say race, for instance, right? And that they they needed to in, instead embrace that group of people for whom they saw were being lost essentially to, you know, national socialism um, or, or um, other more conservative at that time, maybe Kaiser, and you know, previous iterations that, in order to bridge that gap and, and to be serious, the, the trade-off was essentially ditching solidarity with, you know, minority marginalized populations of people and groups of people. And there was even a word that was used in um, the um, National Bolshevist uh, Manifesto, um, the Switzerland, they, they want to uh, avoid the Switzerlandization of Germany. You know, and and by that they meant multiculturalism essentially. Um, the idea that for the program to work, there needed to be homogeny, right? And that homogeny was found within the dominant social groups essentially, and and that being the working class, right? And there's a lot of other things involved with that too, from from that group of people seeing the League of Nations as a Western you know, attempt to essentially colonize Germany or something like that, you know, that France and Britain and the United States were an imperialist force. And that um, a, a lot of the stuff that, that you hear from that time period, Dugan wrote about, and then in turn, you see very poorly, you know, repropositioned by maybe Gray Zone or Max Blumenthal. And by the time it gets to Jimmy Dore, it's, it's very vague and weak. But 
um, I, I think it's th- that's a kind of like a, a good place to start with. And then, you know, off of that, you also have just like a generation of people that grew up that might be my generation that grew up where, where the movement of movements was really anti-globalization. And, but, you know, in that time period, Seattle and, you know, 99 and stuff, that was more concern and solidarity with people in globally speaking, you know, facing unregulated capital and, and the consequences of that, you know, but I, I think even, you know, like me in that time, being a little naive about some of the other forces, reactionary forces that were involved with that too. And then compound on that, a generation of people that only know life post September 11th and the United States being the global, you know, antagonist of the world in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, Libya, Syria, all all these different, what would appear to be, you know, rightfully so imperialist ventures, you know, across the world. So, I, I, when when you compound all of that stuff, you know, when you when you compound the the emphasis on geopolitics, when when you when you incorporate a non-materialist critique, but one of conspiracy and populism, you know, of like you know the United States is is the the bad guy, you know, and kind of you can insinuate that maybe some of the people are then the good guys who oppose them without critically analyzing them. What, what happens with all this stuff is that that core aspect of solidarity is completely removed, you know, and when you try to reassert that, a lot of the same, again, aesthetics and reactions um, that, that happen to me just look very similar to stuff from 2015 4chan because it's it's not in my mind so much that these people are trying to make an alliance with the right. To me, it's just that they're reactionary bigots or they're reactionary people and that they, you know, really do devalue marginalized populations of folks. Again, whether it's for profit or, or ideology, there is an ideology behind it. And it's it's kind of, you know, we'll, we'll probably, it's skipping ahead, but it's it's one of the core tenets to like Duganism and one of the core ideas that's being at least put out for propaganda purposes by the Russian government. All right. Well, we just covered a bunch of stuff. So we went from talking to Jimmy Dore, who again, if you're trying to take notes and and stay up with us, he is a YouTuber, has a million followers. He presents himself as some sort of progressive. He has a lot of people on his show that we're going to be talking about. He was one of the main speakers at this Rage Against the War Machine rally that happened in D.C. But you brought up a couple more names. You brought up Dugan and also Grayzone. Let's start you know, with Grayzone, and then we'll kind of work our way to Dugan because that's going to open up a couple more doors. But So let's talk about Grayzone. They're famously described as sort of like Infowars for tankies. Well, with that, I think we can be more concise. You know, I, I, I toss a lot out there, but... I think what you said is is a pretty good representation of it. You know, the Gray Zone is it's it's a website and, and it has a social media presence. Max Blumenthal, um, Aaron Mate, like you said, uh, Ben Norton. Um, they they have a number of of you know journalists on staff, and essentially what they 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 write things that I think for again folks that that don't get their mind too warped by all of this. If you just objectively looked at it. They write things that 
are biased and and they're biased in favor of essentially other governments. Um, the tricky thing with gray zone is that in the past they've they've done some legitimate work and individuals w- that are associated with gray zone in and of themselves have done legitimate journalistic work, which is what makes them like especially nefarious because it, it just adds to the layers of conspiracy and arguments when you begin to disagree with them. I kind of think though with them, the maybe like a big reveal was um, a lot of the work that was being done um, in with Syria and conspiracies regarding white helmets there and um, conspiracies regarding exactly what happened with chemical attacks, um, you know, specifically whether or not the Assad regime was a part of that or, or whether it was a conspiracy essentially to justify a, a NATO or, or U.S. or Western invasion of the country, you know, kind of like rehashing the argument that was used in, in Iraq, which which also complicates this stuff because, um, I mean, the United States really did do this, you know. But I think that that was kind of a, a reveal when you, you saw some of the people that were involved with that and the fact that the Syrian government paid for members of Gray Zone to go to Syria. Um, when you dig down a little bit deeper and you see folks associated with Gray Zone, but, but other, you know, Caleb Maupin, for instance, we can talk about him, but that, that are going to regional things like the New Horizon Conference and you start to, to see that there's bias, essentially. Long story short. And um, COVID was, they jumped all over that. And um, with COVID also came Ukraine. And um, with Ukraine, they were essentially repeating a lot of, a lot of the, the tropes that were in Oliver Stone's movie that released you know, a few years ago. But um, they were really like a prop, they've become like a propaganda machine for the Russian government. Um, and like all good propaganda, it doesn't mean that everything is 100% inaccurate. But at the very worst, it's just presented in a way that's misleading or it's presented in a way where they're leaving out, you know, facts about you know, other things that are occurring, which might in turn kind of wreck the narrative that they're building around something that might actually be factual. You know, they might be talking about like the Azov Battalion, which exists. You know, I, I did a video on that too but it's the way in which they're presenting it what they're saying and what they're not saying which makes it um i think especially dubious when when we're looking at as opposed to something like 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 cpi for instance um which you know kind of objectively you could say like oh okay like I, I see what what this is all about solo voy con mi pena solada mi condena correr es mi destino para burlar la ley perdido nel corazón de la grande Babilón me dicen el clandestino por no llevar papel a una ciudad del norte yo me fui a trabajar mi vida la dejé entre Ceuta y Gibraltar soy una raya en el mar fantasma en la ciudad mi vida va prohibida Solo voy con mi pena, solada mi condena. Correr es mi destino, o no lleva papel, perdido en el corazón. 
talk about uh, Dugan and Dugan is this figure that looms large our understanding is that he was involved in something called the National Bolshevik Party which was sort of um, like a merging of Stalinism with neo-Nazism and he's also been a promoter of sort of the fourth tendency which is uh yeah, na- again, national Bolshevism, which is like borrowing from quote left and right. Essentially, it's just a reworking of fascism. It's a lot like uh, Strasserism, which was a left wing, ver- which was a, a left wing current within the Nazi Party, uh, sort of reworking that under uh, Russian context. Uh, this has been picked up by people like Heimbach now, and uh, I think the latest kind of iteration of this in the United States for the few people that are following it is, uh, you know, patriotic socialism, people like, uh, Caleb Maupin, who we'll talk about in a bit, uh, part of the center for political innovation have connections to Dugan. Also just people on like the alt right, uh, like Richard Spencer is a fan. Uh, people like Lauren Southern have interviewed him. He's also been described as Putin's brain and sort of someone that's involved in like Russian state politics. So just unpack pack him for us. Who is Dugan and why is he important at all? Again, he's one of these people that I kind of I pound the table for uh, to say that, that he is, in fact, significant, because like some of the people we've talked about to this point, he's one that folks will say, 
is a clown. And, and, and even folks in the region um, will, will say, like, we don't even really take this guy seriously. So, you know, what, what, what's your concern with him? But um, I, I think, you know, again, like what we could say about any of these people we've talked about, whether it's like a, a Jimmy Dore or, or even like a Max Blumenthal, like individually, these people aren't significant in and of themselves, but they're a part of a, a larger thing. Jimmy Dore might be on the, the far, far fringe of that, you know, the used car salesman version, but Dugan's at the heart of it, you know? And so I think that he's extremely important. And I think that understanding him is going to allow um, progressives, you know, Demo- Democrats, even leftists, that it will provide those folks access to understanding what people mean when they say things like, oh, well, they're pro-Putin, for instance, because that can just come off as being very chauvinistic or very, you know, pro-West or something or very dismissive. Um, and that's not the case, you know, and and Dugan is, is the heart of this, because even though while he, again, himself isn't sitting on the throne next to Putin, you know, second in command or something, his ideas over a very long period of time have become extremely influential and have essentially been taken on a life of their own. And, you know, that is his contribution, I think, to the, the bigger discussion, um, which which gets into more complicated stuff we can get to about, you know, like how, how anti-globalization isn't just for the left, <laughs> for instance. But but um, it just, you know, like, so so who is Dugan and, and why is he important? Yeah, he came up, um, as you said, with the National Bolsheviks Party in Russia. So this is actually a part, uh, a, a political party. Edward uh, Limonov was part of it, too. Um, there's some connections there that, that I talk about in that. And I made a video that I'll even admit is a, a ridiculously long, but it kind of needed to be. Um, with Exile Magazine, for instance, and and some of the folks that loosely associate with Gray Zone, um, but but this was a political party in Russia, and um, you know, long story short, at first they were anti-Putin because they saw Putin as essentially just being a neoliberal, um, and they had a, a a mishmash of different ideas uh, of what you know Russia should be. Um, the the look and the aesthetic was kind of you know, stuff that Edward had picked up probably from being in Paris or New York City, most likely in the 70s. It's kind of like a punk kind of thing. But um, it was a combination of, you know, rebellion uh, with traditional ideas, kind of more influenced by Dugan. Um, Some people said, call them fascist, you know, and then there's arguments about what does fascism mean. But regardless, they were a reactionary organization. And um, at first they, they were anti-Putin again because they saw Putin as essentially kind of being just a new lapdog after, you know, what happened with Yeltsin and the economy in Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's, there's, there's a lot of patriotism, nationalism, hearkening back to the Soviet Union involved with this, but also a lot of edge, a lot of rebellion, and a lot of anti-establishment stuff. But that all changed when Putin began um, his, his, I guess you could say, you know, expansion or, or wars in the region. Um, you know, Moldova, uh, 
Georgia, and and then you know with an eye towards what uh, was happening in Ukraine, kind of after that, you know, meddling with Belarus and um, Lushenko there in that um, election. There, there, there was something kind of like a mini you know Maidan protest that happened in, in Belarus as well. But long story short, once once Putin began. I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of being red pilled in, in their in their view of things, or maybe seeing you know how they can manipulate events to to favor what they wanted, they became very pro Putin, um, and and that's kind of where Dugan begins to be someone that's important, and and honestly, the National Bolshevik Party kind of isn't in, in the bigger scheme of things, but but Dugan gains some institutional legitimacy kind of after that. He wrote a book called Foundations of Geopolitics, which um, is is important because it, it begins to lay out the arguments that you might hear at Rage Against the War Machine against imperialism. Right. Um, this was done in like the late 90s. But um, one of the key features of Foundation of Geopolitics, along with it, essentially just explaining why Russia should have a new empire is, is really what it is. But uh, and, and there's a lot of you know a, a lot of political science and history and stuff to justify that basic end. But one one of the key things in there was the idea that Ukraine cannot be sovereign and that Ukraine cannot have an independent you know will for itself. Um, paraphrasing, there's there's a section that specifically says something to the effect of um, you know an in, in independently minded Ukraine is a destabilizing force in greater Eurasia, the greater you know, area that Dugan wanted Russia to, to reincorporate. And that it needs to be a projection of Moscow, meaning it doesn't necessarily need to be taken over totally and incorporated into Russia, which is kind of slowly what's happening right now, but that it, it needs to be controlled and, and guided by Russia, which is what they wanted with Yanukovych, which is you know what they have with, in Belarus. So, that's kind of like the beginning part. That's the first part, the geopolitics of it. And then the second part with him is fourth position theory. And that to me is um, more important if we're talking about hearts and minds. Because fourth position theory, when you look at it, um, maybe in Cliff's Notes or something, it it can read as an anti-imperialist book. And, and you know, you, you can frame fourth position theory as an argument against Western dominance against uh, a global hegemon of any type that will allow for a multipolar world, a, a world in which there are multiple powers, maybe China, maybe Russia, the United States, the Atlanticists, you know, nations, as he calls Europe. So I think that when we're talking about left-right alliance and messaging and people you know, gray zone, for instance, is going to do a much better job than Jimmy Dore. But when when, when we talk about pro-Putin, you know, this is where we start, for me, getting into the heart of it and, and why, it why it should matter to people. Because the, the, the main, I guess, if we're, if we're going to say, okay, well, he's against globalization. Okay, so maybe that's good. He's against, you know, international capital exploding labor globally. Like, we can get behind that. But that's not why. He's against globalization. He's essentially against globalization, one, to justify Russian empire, but two, because he comes from a traditionalist point of view. And his politics are traditionalist, reactionary. 
And part of his critique on globalization isn't from that kind of late 90s leftist you know, perspective. It's from what you would hear Alex Jones say, or it's from anti-Semitic populist rhetoric. It's, it's, it's against the idea of anybody, any governing force, anybody in the world being able to enforce rights for people globally. The concept of something like universal human rights, for instance, is posed as a form of Western chauvinism and imperialism. And it's where a, a lot of the anti-trans stuff comes from, the anti-LGBTQ stuff comes from. It's not isolated to like 4chan and, and you know, people in the West. Um, this is a very serious scholar. And, and this work, well, at least geopolitics, was literally taught in the Russian military academy. And the things that you hear Putin and people around him in the government say echo a lot of this stuff, even if Dugan today is kind of dismissed, you know, and he's important because his ideas have been co-opted into actual foreign policy and uh, propaganda. And the, the, the insidiousness of his anti-globalism is that, again, it's based in this concept of something like universal human rights being imperialist. And that's when it gets complicated for, for folks, especially folks on the left. Rage Against the War Machine, anti-war, right? We're anti-imperialist. And that sounds right. And Gray Zone can write an article about the Azov Battalion, and they're all Nazis. And that sounds good, right? But then when you start to look at what it is they're actually saying, it's very much not good. And going back to solidarity, I think the, even the concept of solidarity, just period, but especially internationally, I that would be, I think, construed or repackaged as being a form of imperialism itself, in that you're forcing your culture upon ours, that, that we need to, I don't know, recognize the fact that, you know, someone who's trans should live, you know, but, but that's where it is that they're coming from. And that's what informs a lot of the stuff that we see with these folks that are way down the line of messaging you know, Tim, Tim Poole, maybe not so much, but Jimmy Doors and Jackson Hinkles and Caleb Malpins, you know, maybe a little bit closer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's why he's important. He's, he's the ideological kind of like father for a lot of the stuff that we see proliferated with Gray Zone and, and these other entities that we talked about. Or right, let's move from Dugan and talk about one of his big fans, uh, Caleb Maupin. Caleb Maupin, you may have heard about, he runs this group called the CPI or the Center for Political Renewal. They are sort of like a weird, almost caricature of Marxist-Leninist or Stalinist. You might have seen images of their their conference from last year. They kind of went viral. They have this like really bizarre sort of model UN energy where a lot of the folks involved with them, their leadership is almost all made up of people that are journalists that work for surprise, surprise, Russia or Russian linked uh, media. They did this thing where they had like a uh, hammer and sickle and then American flags and they were holding up big Z symbols, which is the symbol for the Russian invasion and like victory of Russian forces in Ukraine. So they had this like weird conference where they're holding up Z symbols with like 
hammer and sickle communist flags with American flags. Their whole thing is that they believe that the left is just ridiculous and they don't want anything to do with wokeness and that instead they feel that they should recruit from apolitical people or MAGA supporters or even the right wing. And they have some crossover with kind of the gray zone world and also even far right circles like Matthew Heinbach was at their last meeting in DC. So let's unpack what is the CPI and who are they and who is Caleb Moppin? Where do these folks come from? Let's start with CPI. Although I think, you know, Moppin is a good link. I, I used him as kind of like a narrative link in, in the video that I made because, um, you know, he was, he, he's, he's literally met with Alexander Dugan. So there's, uh, you know, it's when, when, when we start talking about these thousand page books and stuff, things can get a little abstract, but, but he's a, he's, he's a, he's a direct, you know, connection. And, and so first that's why, you know, he's important. And, and he was at, of course, this rage against the war machine speaking. So there's another kind of, you know, link to, to that, to, to make it make more sense, I guess. But, you know, so, so CPI, yeah. I mean, CPI, first of all, it's a think tank, you know, so, so that's, you know, what, what it is. Um, what does that think tank do? Well, you know, that's kind of open to interpretation, but I, I guess if you're going to like say, you know, the basics, what, what is this idea, you know, cause we can talk about Kayla, but what, what's the idea that CPI is, is, is talking about what are they drawing from? Well, they draw heavily from the, the guy we just talked about. So they take a lot from Dugan and they talk and they, they take a lot from um, the LaRoche movement too. And they kind of mash that up with some pseudo Marxist Leninist and, and American populist history um, to make this, you know, kind of fascistic ideology. And, 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 you know, we can talk about why. Um, but, you know, it, it, LaRoche is probably too much for this discussion. But, I mean, I think long story short, for people who don't know about who he is, he started out in the left and then he moved to the right. He became really his movement became pretty infamous for disrupting progressive um, or, or left, you know, attempts at organizing. And uh, a lot of his a lot of the stuff in his ideology is based on conspiracy, which, again, goes back to like the beginning of why I think conspiracy is 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 so important. But, you know, with it, CPI borrows heavily when they when we talk about the conspiracies that are part of what they promote from. LaRoche and I guess geopolitically and, and maybe culturally, if we're talking about the politics of culture from, from Duke and stuff that, that was just mentioned. Um, you know, it's the, the CPI has a four, it has stuff. It needs to have stuff because it's a think tank. And in order to keep that IRS designation, it has to be doing something, you know? So it, it does have a, a four point plan up on its, its website. And, and when you look at it, you know, a, a lot like the things we've talked about on the surface, it, it looks pretty good. You know, mass mobilization, con public control of banks, um, an economic bill of rights. You know, these things are pretty, pretty alluring. But then when you look behind it and you see what they mean, again, um, the cracks form. Um, CPI as an organization was very early to recognize the separatist uh, regions of eastern Ukraine. 
So you'll see stuff about, you know, LPR and DPR um, associated with them. Um, they have classes on um, Marcyism, which I find really interesting. Again, that's probably beyond this, but um, just just an, an, an interesting sub branch, I guess you could say, of, of communism that um, that can easily be linked to supporting a lot of really bad people, I guess. Um, and and then you get into the videos on on the website, and the videos are are you know people like George Galloway. I don't think we mentioned him, but he's kind of one of these conspiracists. Um, some of the, the lesser guys, I think you could say like Haas from Infrared, Jackson Hinkle. But but these are all, you know, the these are all the guys and 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 people kind of one step below Jimmy Dore, I guess, if if we're looking at it from like a YouTube algorithmic point of view. And and this entity is is kind of there to, for them to use, to self-promote, promote themselves and and promote their their kind of strange ideas. Um there is a, a, an interesting kind of, of, of thing that happens there that I think that's worth talking about because some of this stuff isn't worth talking about, to be honest. But I, I think that one, one thing that is, is this idea of like Stalin versus Trotsky, you know, and that long story short, Trotsky represented this like intellectual elite or something and that Stalin represented the people and that a lot of people that you'll see that follow folks like this will say that they're Maoist or Stalinists, you know, things like that. Um, that the, the idea that Stalin was like a nationalist and wasn't, you know, it, it doesn't mean if it's accurate, but that, that he wasn't as interested in internationalism, you know, as Trotsky was, um, that he was able to mobilize the forces of the working class in a way that someone like maybe Trotsky could not. It, it's an early way of, of, of dividing the left into the real left and the fake left. And that's a big part of what they sell. And the way that they kind of repackage that in a modern sense is in the synthetic left. And um, you'll see the synthetic left all over CPI stuff as well as Caleb's stuff. But it, it creates a, a chasm within the left, but also like liberals and you know Democrats and progressives too. Um, you'll see them just just uh, cling on to and mercilessly attack um, members of the squad and say things, you know, like like majority Taylor Green is to the left of, of these people and, you know, things like that. But but it's it's like a way for them to claim real ownership over Marxism, um, even though they're interjecting just a whole lot of real bad stuff and, and conspiracy theories. And, you know, they, they kind of get that from LaRoche. Um, this idea of splitting it. One one of the big things CPI talks a lot about with the synthetic left is bread tube as well as uh, Congress on cultural freedom. Um, LaRoche talked more about the Frankfurt School. It doesn't really matter. I, you know, we can talk about all those things if you want, but I think long story short, Caleb saw what LaRoche did in a, in, in a way to divide the left and he kind of copied it. And so CPI is is stating that it's it's not the communist party of you know america or the communist party of blah 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 that are the real owners of marxist leninism it's actually cpi that is and and that this is why and that those who don't believe that are part of this conspiracy you know which is like a psyop conspiracy copied from laroche saying that 
you know, a long time ago, there, there was like a CIA infiltration or division in the left. And, and that's, that's how you get woke people today. And that's how you get performative politics. These folks would like to say from like, you know, progressives in, in the electoral sphere. Um, it's why they attack bread tube and um, it's, it's why they get to be bigoted essentially. Um, but so they, they try to, to justify all of that by claiming this conspiratorial divide that, that happened either going all the way back to Stalin or in the United States, kind of like the sixties with the, if, if you're a LaRoche, maybe the Frankfurt school, if you're Caleb Congress on cultural freedom. Um, and in the modern sense, you know, we keep going back to this idea of, of wokeism, but uh, also along with a lot of the things that they talk about um, are some, some straight up anti-Semitic tropes. Um, you know, Caleb wrote a book, Satan at the Fountainhead, the, the Israel lobby, the financial crisis. Um, he attacks George Soros, you know, all the time. He leans into the neocon Israeli lobby canard, which is kind of like a repackaging of the elders of Zion. Um, and I, I, again, without going into what all that is, a lot of this is repackaged anti-Semitic conspiracy stuff. Um, so, so, you know, that's kind of like the core, I think, of, of what it is that, that they're presenting from CPI and, and what Caleb is trying to say and setting himself apart. Um, and then I, I think that, you know, we also have to mention people like, you know, we talked about Nick Brana earlier with the, with the People's Party. Um, CPI is is a place where a lot of these people filter through at events. You know, they use it for their own organizing as well. Um, again, it's a think tank. So, you know, take that for what you will regarding like the IRS perspective of it. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there because then my, my question would be, do you even want to go into what happened with Caleb and CPI? Um, or is that, is, is that too much? No, I think we should. And maybe that will be a place where we can kind of like uh, pump the brakes and then have a little more discussion. But yeah, so Caleb was the leader of CPI again, Center for Political Renewal was sort of this like red brown alliance taking from Duganism again, like attacking the wokeism of the left again, this boogeyman. And then some people within CPI came out, said there had been sexual abuse, uh, corruption, supposedly the organization disintegrated. And then magically, right when this rally happened, it put itself back together. And then right after the rally in D.C., they had an event and Heimbach was there with his group. So what happened? Yeah, it's really dark. It's, it's really dark stuff. Um, so I think without like going into into detail and there is a, a doc, there, there's a doc available. It, it was on uh, Medium and then um, I think it was taken down, but you can definitely find it on on, on Twitter if you want to. But long story short, it started with, with Caleb um, doing really just cult stuff. And, and what I mean by that is um, turning people against each other, um, isolating people w- within the group, but, but also just like in general. Um, and it really kind of came to a head when he began propositioning well i i should say eventually he propositioned people for for sex but 
before that, what he was doing was um, essentially finding young people, you know, to, to work with this. And, and he had other kind of groups off of this, the, the John Brown group that he had and um, bringing them in, trying to facilitate, you know, like a, 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 a safe uh, a safe spot, a safe space for these people. Uh, many of them who are in economic dire straits, some of them uh, allegedly by him, you know, having uh, drug problems and things like that. And, um, you know, uh, getting to uh, an interpersonal space where they would confide in him things. And some of them did confide abuse. In turn, um, he also began to confide in, in specific um, people, women in the organization, how um, he was also abused, but how after, you know, lengthy conversations and lengthy text, like really aggressive love bombing, you know, of, of these individuals confiding how he kind of got sexual gratification um, when, when reflecting on what these other people had confided into him, you know, in, regarding their own personal abuse. Long story short, he was getting off on reimagining the stories of people getting abused. That flipped into later through a series of, of events, propositioning people within the group um, for sex, um, S&M stuff, basically. Um, along with that, uh, he also, when I say, you know, separated people, he would put people up in like hotel rooms, for instance, and and have them pay rent <laughs> on, on the hotel rooms. But but but, you know, he, he would put them up on, on hotel rooms and pay the majority, for instance, and um, make it so that these individuals um, only stream of income was through CPI. So, you know, these people would, would be in a housing situation in which Caleb or CPI was at least mostly you know, a part of, uh, providing financially speaking. And, and the only kind of money that they had came from like canvassing, you know, or activities like that directly connected to the organization. And I don't know, I've canvassed, you know, when, when, when I was younger and, uh, depending on what it is that you're trying to sell, it can not be fruitful. And, you know, the, the, the people that were involved in this document that were released, reported things, you know, like $30 a day, I believe. Uh, I could be wrong, but, you know, like like that for, for the kind of money that, that they were making. And, and then, you know, along with that reality, again, going back to the sex stuff, you know, kind of pushing people into sex work. Um, Caleb would specifically point things out, uh, you know, about what they would wear. There's a lot of stuff in there about him saying, you know, it, th that guy seems gay, for instance. Um, there's a whole section in the document, you know, specifically about that, how Caleb, again, would ostracize people within the group to kind of turn them against each other. But one of the ways he would do that is uh, by, by, you know, disparaging them, saying that they looked gay. He even uh, sent a text to his wife, which has been captured and, and a screenshot and is out there on the internet talking about how he wanted to start like a compound in the woods, um, you know, with, with the kids, which, which are the people of, of CPI, um, to which she said, you know, you're crazy. Um, so all of this and other things came to light in a document that was put out by members of CPI. Um, CPI decided 
the, the leadership of CPI decided that Maupin should leave. And he uh, did so. He canceled all of his social media stuff. Um, you know, I forgot to mention earlier, he, he was employed with RT, which is a big deal. But even I, I say that because even RT wrote an article about him. So it was it was out there. They had to kind of cover themselves because he was associated with RT media, which is like Russian state media. Um, and then, as you said, all of a sudden, a few months later, he, just, he was just there again, you know, and what happened is that he moved the headquarters of the organization and that he, along with some of the former leadership, essentially restarted the organization. Caleb said that he was like the ideological father of it and therefore was legitimized in doing so. And um, shortly after, they were at Rage Against the War Machine and, and CPI was a sponsor listed on the website. Caleb was speaking at the after party. There's uh, it's there, there's a gray area about how um, uh, Matthew Heimbach got to that spot, but there's a lot going on right now in terms of CPI trying to clean that up, saying that that they weren't the ones that uh, invited him. He's saying he was invited. So right now it's kind of like pointing towards Caleb Malpin, although he hasn't said that he did, but still. Um, so it's it's uh, real dark stuff and a mess on a lot of different levels, really ruining people's lives. But, you know, also just the, the ideological link to, to all that stuff I said about, you know, Russia and Ukraine is that, yeah, Caleb was employed by, by RT Media and uh, CPI was very early on recognizing the, the separatist regions and, um, you know, Matthew Heimbach has been involved with that, too. It's probably a, a different discussion. We'll talk about that or not. But but for, for CPI and, and, and Caleb, I kind of think that's where they stand. So let's talk about Jackson Hinkle, who's sort of kind of like, you know, a more polished version of all this stuff. He's sort of like the alt-light version of a lot of these figures. Um, you know, kind of like made for Instagram, you know, says incredible things like, uh, just cheering the Russian invasion, selling Z shirts. Where do we see this sort of crossover between outright fascists and the CPI folks going? Is it going to continue? Yeah. I, I say, I say that I like, I like Jackson Hinkle because he's either, he's either positioning himself as like the heel, you know, in this. Or he's just really dumb, you know, and um, it could be both. But yeah, he's, he says stuff that's that's either outrageous for purpose or outrageous because he doesn't have like a self-filter that maybe some other people do. Um, I, I, I think that that's, you know, open to interpretation. But he's great, you know, because as our viewers are probably beginning to see, like this stuff can get really complicated. But um, and, 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 and it's legitimate that's complicated. It doesn't necessarily have to though. And I think, you know, going on to someone like Jackson Hinkle's Twitter is, is probably a great visual aid because um, he, he just puts very outrageous things out there. Like you're saying. Um, And, and he was a part of the rage against the war machine thing too. Um, With, I I think probably um, the biggest thing I saw from him that I appreciate, you know, his, his like honesty, um, it is by posting being pro-Russia as being anti-war, you know, and, and that was a, a very nice kind of synopsis of what Rage Against the War Machine was about, 
saying, you know, essentially that we, you know, not just the United States, but Poland and Germany and um, all the Baltic states and European, that we need to stop helping Ukraine. You know, they need to go to the peace table and just give up part of their land and that that's how you achieve peace, you know, and why that's not correct is beyond this episode, I'll say. But um, it's essentially a very pro, you know, it would be as if the United States invaded a country and you blamed the people there for defending themselves and said the U.S. should just be able to keep what they took and that will bring peace. You know, it's it's a basically like that. So that, that's why I, I appreciate Hinkle because he just says this stuff, you know. Um, but again, talking about dismissing people and, you know, he, he's more clownish than like a Ben Norton, you know? I think the other thing to point out is people like Dugan have explicitly stated the Ukrainians should be genocided. And, and, and that's why Dugan is so important to it all. And, and I was just going to add with, with Hinkle, you know, even though you can say all this stuff that, you know, you look at his stuff and you're like, wow, he's a joke. But I mean, he was on, he was on Tucker, <laughs> you know, he made it. So, so he made it to that viewership and, and whatever that is. And um, yeah, so, you know, people's granddad saw him and, you know, he's, he's on all these alternative sites like Getter and stuff and, um, you know, Rockfin videos and, and uh, you know, places where, where folks like that might go to. So, you know, even someone like him, when you look at his over the top things, you might say, well, whatever. He's still extremely influential in his own way. And like you said, even though I would love to sit down with Jackson Hinkle and ask him, explain the fourth position theory to me, um, because it wouldn't happen. Or if it did, it wouldn't happen very well. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, because if he just posed something like being pro-Russian or, you know, being anti-war is being pro-Russian, that's, that, that's helpful for, you know, someone like Dugan's message, right? Which is inherently reactionary and traditionalist in and of itself, but as you stated too, imperialist in and of itself, and attempting to justify reacquisition of essentially former colonial territory in that region, you know. But the the traditionalist thing I think is interesting because that's how Dugan used to describe himself, and sometimes he still does, you know. And he has a, a Eurasianist party and Eurasianist youth union. And like these people have been involved in destabilizing Ukraine a decade before Maidan happened in 2014. Like this is this is not this is not a slow roll or this is a slow roll, I should say. And his books are, are you know, older than that. So it's, it's not a new thing. This is something that's slowly been ramping up in which the government of Russia has kind of co-opted for their pro- for their propaganda uses. Right. But I find a traditionalist thing interesting because that's also how I've seen um how I've seen Matthew Heimbach present himself as well when he's trying when he's trying to avoid saying that he's like a white nationalist, you know. And there is the the traditionalist youth network founded by him. Um, you know, I I note that Dugan and his anti globalization is is justified in this. Although Dugan has be, begun to use the term populism himself to to explain what he's doing. But you know, when you said. That, that that Heimbach was interested in, in in getting all these groups together to oppose probably he would say something like neoliberalism or, or something along those lines. That's the essence of Dugan's fourth position theory is that there isn't a proposition. There isn't necessarily a positive argument. It's that everybody, but especially traditionalist 
groups throughout the world need to come together and reject neoliberalism or, or the Western hegemon. Again, which from the left might sound good, but when he's saying it, 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 it means a lot of, of cultural things, again, like ideas of universal human rights, you know? And no, I, I mean, know, to them, that's like the central thing. And yes, like to them, yeah. wokeness is sort of like the, the vanguard of how they perceive that. And I think yep. this would be a good time to talk about why like Heimbach has stated that like Putin is, you know, the leader of the free world and Russia is yep. this, you know, beacon on a hill. And it seems to be because of the reactionary social positions the Russian state has and like their attacks on quote wokeness, you know, globalists, trans people. There's no four genders in Russia. So therefore Russia is this based awesome ethno state or something like that. And America sucks because of wokeness and trans people. So unpack that for us. Yeah. And, and, and I like this because I feel like that's kind of, I feel like that's a culmination of what we've talked about, but also the reason why people need to take this stuff seriously because of, of the real life geopolitical implications of it, as well as just hate groups and, and, you know, proliferation of that, that there's, governments, you know, behind this type of getting behind this type of thing and supporting these people. And it's, it's serious stuff, even if they're clowns individually, you know, I mean, even uh, Max Blumenthal has talked about the concept of Nova Russia, you know, and for folks I, I, on the left, again, I, I think it's a little, it can get a little complicated, but the idea of, of, of globalization, right. And, and, being anti-globalist is is just something that's not owned by the left, and it's something that a lot of white supremacists support. Um, and we could say Dugan too. I mean, let's just put them all together and you know not argue about the, the specifics. But if you go on to the Daily Stormer, for instance, there are tons of articles not only supporting Putin but supporting Assad, which might make people you know cross their eyes and say, "How do you get to there?" But it's because it's with Russia, as you said, and it's it's odd because, you know, I feel like a few years ago with the alt-right, it was Poland before this. But uh, with with Russia, you're right that if you go on to the Daily Stormer or if you go on the Stormfront, I don't suggest people do this, but and you, and you just kind of search around their message boards, there's going to be a lot of stuff talking about how Russia is the white savior. They are the protector of the West. They are the protector of Christendom. Um, and Heimbach has actually said that, you know, specifically the third Rome and, and that, you know, specifically Russia is, is the great protector of Christendom. Um, yes, that can get into, into some, some Russian imperialist stuff we probably don't need to get into. But, um, you know, regardless of what people might say online, Russia does have hate groups and some of them are sponsored by the government. And, um, you know, some of them are directly linked to this stuff, like Russian national unity, um, the Russian imperialist movement, uh, Task Force Ruzik under the, the, the Wagner group. Um, so this stuff is very real, you know, and it's why people like Heimbach take pictures in front of those separatist flags and those Nova Russia flags and why Blumenthal pumps that stuff, too. It's because they share an ideological goal. And again, it's it's the same kind of ideological goal that you can see by going on to Stormfront, 
And it's the same ideological goal that you can see by going on to VK, which is a Russian-owned social media platform. And those groups that I just talked about will be proliferating, you know, stuff making fun of Black Lives Matter or Antifa, you know. And and, and that's, it's not, I don't want to say horseshoe because I don't want to get into that, but it, it, it's it's not that these people are like forming a coalition. It's that they all believe the same stuff. And that's kind of my position on that is that it's not an alliance. It's just that they agree, you know, and, and fundamentally Russia is at the heart of that agreement. And it's, it's not Russia because Russia is bad. It's not Russia because Putin is evil. You know, it's none of that. And I feel like sometimes leftists default to that because of hangover from 2016 and hangover from, you know, Democrats blaming Hillary's loss on Russia and stuff like that. That's like a whole different topic. Like, this is actually a, a government propagandizing this this conservative perspective. There's an international um, conservative conference that happens in Russia every year. Golden Dawn was there, and, and you know they're associated with with Matthew Heinbach too. But some of those people that I talked about, and you know I have videos on all this stuff. But like Task Force Ruzik, for instance, which is um, an out and out you know, Nazi organization, they're everything that gray zone tells you the Azov battalion is, except they're on the Russian side, essentially. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're talking and they have lanyards and, and everything too. So I, I, I think that a piece of this earlier, you know, I talked about how some of this goes back to, to stuff that happened with, with Sanders and stuff and Clinton, and maybe before that, a letdown with Obama and what he, you know, might've been and, and didn't seem to be with his policies. It was during that time, like the tea party era with the pre mag, the pro, you know, like the proto MAGA, essentially a tea party in which institutional power was being gained by people that were formerly on the fringe of the right wing movements in the United States. You know, some of them had connections to the nineties, Patriot movement, militia movement, ideologically in sync with people like Timothy McVeigh and Eric Rudolph terrorists, you know, but it was at that time where you, you started to see, but it was on the right, a lot of love for Putin. And a lot of it was in juxtaposition to Barack Obama. And it was um, all of the right-wing conspiracies, the anti-Semitic stuff, elders of Zion, globalists, this and that, except Barack Obama was at the heart of that. And of course, that was racially you know, based, that was based on uh, 9-11 and Islamophobia and connecting him to you know Islam. Um, it, it was all racist, bad stuff that was even older, you know, regurgitated from the 50s and 60s and Christian identity and posse comitatus and things like that. Um, but it, it's kind of from from that era that you start to see the Putin love. It was on the right. And I always point people to Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan himself has an anti, he's, he has, he writes on antiwar.com, you know, and Pat Buchanan was one of the first modern, I think, kind of far right figures in the US to gain traction. He was always seen as being a little too like, you know, if 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 you were George Bush the first, he didn't want to be on stage next to him. He was bad optics. You know, he was too too fringe and a little too connected to some hate groups. But, you know, he gained legitimacy. He started getting on stuff like Fox News and and he wrote a a, a blog piece um over a decade ago. I mean, geez, a long time ago now, but it's still up entitled Putin, is he one of us? And and he describes Putin as somebody who is Christian, as somebody 
who is against the LGBTQ community, somebody who is against abortion, somebody that is essentially acting as a savior to what the conservative view of the West is. And it juxtaposed him to Barack Obama, which was, who was depicted as an enemy of the West, essentially, as cultural Marxism that coming kind of from the LaRoche movement, right? The idea of degradation of, of the West from inside. And I mean, that's red pill stuff. You know, that's, that's straight 4chan, get you on, on, on the red pill train to white nationalist stuff. But, but that's in, in my mind, you know, where this started and the specific time period and where it started. And it was also in that time, you know, Dugan had already done his stuff, but it was in that time where Dugan and his Eurasianist um, groups were already agitating in Ukraine, were already you know, had been in, in the borders of Ukraine protesting and, and causing issues. The um, Orange Revolution, which was kind of, you know, probably too much for this, but it, it, was, it was almost like a pre-Maidan that, that happened um, where you, the, the president that was deposed uh, at the Maidan protest won, but it was corrupt. And, and so the uh, President Yushchenko was put in power, the opposition. Um, you know, they were already there on the ground. Like like starting trouble, and and so that that's where the 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 origin I think of the pro Putinism comes from, and through all the tactics of the alt right and being based and red pilled and all of that, the aesthetics were copied, um, along with a lot of the ideology that Dugan introduced, um, along with conspiracies and all the just stuff that happened Syria, Ukraine, COVID. Um, and, and repackaged it into the left. Enjoying this podcast and want to support It's Going Down so we can continue to crank out more content? It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now... Back to the show. So we've been talking for a while now. There's, we covered a lot. I think the question is, is that where does this go from here? You know, also people like Tucker Carlson, you know, continue to kind of point towards Russia as this culture war epicenter. So I guess my last question to you is, you know, where does this go? Where does this Russia fixation as this entity that is pushing forward this culture war end up at? The way that reactionary politics, the way that fascist politics, the brown part of the red politics, the, you know, ultimately what ends up happening is, and, and just populist politics in, in general, is that when the people start, you know, losing elections, that, that doesn't, there's cognitive dissonance because, you know, the, a lot of the pro-Russia stuff is is kind of repackaged and, and sold as like MAGA stuff in the United States. And um, the MAGA stuff, again, is pointing to the real Americans, you know, and, and we know who that is, right? So when when the real Americans keep losing elections and, and this 
you know, happens in, in other parts of history too, the next logical step is that they begin to think, because in populism, conspiracy is inherent, that there is a conspiracy against them by the elites, you know, and whether those elites, whether the person saying it has the guts to just out and out say Jewish people or, or something else, that's what it is, you know, you start having election denial. Then you start having mass mobilization, I suppose Caleb Maupin would say, against the establishment, like anti-lockdown stuff, you know, and you start having um, people lose faith in their institutions. And, and that leaves the door open to and the last election that might happen for a long time. And as much as people want to diminish it, I mean, I think that that's represented by January 6th. I understand what you're saying by um, losing faith in the institutions. I feel like that's a little more of a liberal framing. I mean, you know, we would welcome that. I mean, I think that's that's very healthy, but yeah. I mean, in, in a way that that it depends, uh, yeah, that opens the door to, yes. you know, self-organization, autonomy, freedom, you know, actual something that, that is more democratic than democracy itself. Just to kind of tease this out a little more, I mean, I feel like, you know, if you look at what's happening in Russia, where, you know, anti-fascists and anarchists, I mean, are, are being tortured and yep. demonstrations are suppressed, people that speak out against the war are thrown in prison. Um, yep. You know, there was recently Jack Hanran had an interview with some anarchists uh, that were in, involved in uh, fighting back against the war machine. And they were talking, literally, and they were talking about carrying around suicide pills in case they're arrested so they wouldn't have to go through torture by the Russian state. I mean, this is real stuff. And this is, yeah. I think, I mean, I think this is kind of the, at the end tail of it, this is why a lot of people on the right are celebrating this regime because it is so brutal. Um, and it's just a totalitarian government. And that's really what they're after. At the heart of it is kind of that, the, the removal of solidarity you know, kind of where we started in that you end up when you go down that rabbit hole, what, what ends up inevitably happening is that you won't see any of the people we talked about ever post about activists in Russia or anti-war protests in Russia or in, in, in very specific countries or Syria, right? The only time that you'll see these, these people who are saying, oh, I'm on the left, I'm anti-establishment, I'm this and that. The only time you'll see them actually talk about activists or anti-war protesters, agitation, you know, et cetera, out organizing outside of the West, which it criticizes in the West, um, or excuse me, or it supports in the West. The only time that you'll see that um, presented is in criticism. And, you know, it'll be defined as a color revolution, or it'll, it'll be defined as CIA operated. And instead, what you have in replace of international solidarity with people um, is this type of international solidarity with cops and governments, right? So <laughs> to where you're justifying very brutal, you know, regimes, which is why CPI has stuff on Marxism, for instance, you know, that they teach people. And a lot of that comes from LaRouche too. Yes, the, the, the solidarity that exists from this group is not with people. It, it's not with people facing the effects of imperialism, even necessarily from the United States, you know, it's not in solidarity with marginalized, oppressed individuals. It's essentially supporting the cops, the regimes and governments of other countries. You know, right now it's Russia and, you know, eventually something's going to happen in Russia, but 
whatever that is, if they have to move on, they'll, they'll move on to something else too, you know, but you're right. That's the end game. And, and, you know, you, you are correct to, to jump in there. When I talked about losing faith in institutions, but, but, but that's the goal is to maybe not have people lose faith in, in institutions, but in, in th- what they want to do is control those institutions, like what you said. And, you know, part of that is taking away however, you know, however you want to criticize electoralism, but is, 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 you know, diminishing or taking away access to electoralism by, by populations. And, and that is ultimately kind of like where they're headed and, and what they've shown they want to do. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.